Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, almost always a creative, dedicated minority has made the world better. I think that sentiment is largely true, and it bodes well for the Christian West, because we friends are on the decline. That is, people who consider themselves Christians and people that involve themselves in public worship. That decline has been noticed by a variety of statisticians, and the Gallup poll, one of their last polls, said that the silent generation, so the generation before the baby boomers, 85% of them considered themselves religious Christians. But when it comes to millennials, it's only 49%. So now, if the millennial generation and Gen Z, right after it, Uh, continues in this trajectory, Christians will be in the minority. I'm not a mathematician, but 85% to 49% seems like a fairly precipitous decline and a worrisome one. And yet, Martin Luther King Jr.'s words seem seductive and uh, true to me, that a creative, dedicated minority can change the world for the better. And so how do we as Christians function as a minority? I think we need to start thinking that way. We need to leave the Christendom model in which we have great sway and influence over most of the institutions of our land and instead adopt a different perspective as a thoughtful, creative, engaged minority. So what do we do? Do we run? Do we rage? Do we wither? Do we plot? Do we hide? Or, like Joseph, do we flourish and cause the decaying world around us to rise from the dead? Well, chapter one, uh, chapter 41 in uh, Genesis highlights Joseph's massive and unplanned transition from the pit to the palace. And I want to notice two things that Joseph employed that helped him in terms of a healthy cultural engagement. Two things that I think will help us as well. And those two things are loyalty and leaven. So I'm going to speak about loyalty and leaven this morning. Uh, But first, loyalty. Now I'm going to be uh, highlighting a few verses, key verses within this very large text. And you should thank me for that, that I'm not preaching line by line or else we would be here till about 6 p.m. tonight. Uh, But let me speak about a few key verses that have to do with loyalty, because Joseph knew a lot about loyalty. He discovered something about loyalty in the midst of his tumult. Joseph bowed down and deferred to an ultimate authority whom he knew was supreme, and that was God. And there is a lot of God talk in this passage, which is a demarcation from earlier sections of the Joseph story in which God, at least by name, is strangely absent. Well, God makes a lot of appearances 
uh, verbal appearances in this uh, particular chapter. So let's look at the God talk language of this passage. Verse 16, I invite you to underline it or look at it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. It's a very important passage, and here's why. It demonstrates a transition in Joseph's thinking. Uh, the context is that Pharaoh is seeking after an interpretation for very disturbing dreams that he's had, and he has consulted with all the consultants, and they've failed him. So he hears a rumor that somebody somewhere, a prisoner, an untouchable, somebody in the lowest class and caste, has great wisdom, and he sought after that man and then asked him what his dreams meant. Uh, and Joseph responds to Pharaoh, it is not me, God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. I want you to notice something about Joseph's change of heart, change of character. Recall, for example, how Joseph's story began, because it didn't begin this way. Instead, it began with him being a tattletale on his siblings and then boasting to his siblings that the sun, moon, and stars and all the crops symbolizing parents and siblings would bow down to him. God was notoriously absent from all of those dreams as well as from Joseph's language. But now when Joseph has to re-enter the dream field, he gives God prominence. And that's an interesting development and change of heart. Now, God is the very center of Joseph's consciousness. And so, and this is especially fascinating because Joseph had these self-aggrandizing dreams and he is in a place to milk that self-aggrandizement and he doesn't do it. So he is now in front of the most powerful czar, emperor, king, magistrate in the world. A perfect opportunity to exalt himself, and he doesn't do it. Instead, he says, it is not in me. It is not in me. It is God. It is God who will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. I love this, that he says, look, this skill that I have, I didn't create it. I didn't go to college and take the courses. I didn't go to a Tony Robbins seminar. They were sold out. Instead, instead, this is just something God put in my life. But I can't take a lot of credit for it. And by the way, you can get a lot further in life if you stop caring about your reputation. Stop caring about your character. Um, to heck with ambition. Just realize that most of the good things that you have in life are gifts rather than crafts. Now, you have some crafts, too, things that you've worked on and honed. But Joseph is saying this ability to interpret dreams is something that God gave me. It's just something that... Uh, I inherited from heaven. I think there's a lesson in there not to overown our gifts, but to hold them with open hands and to present them for the good of the world rather than the exaltation of the self. Well, Joseph learned a little something about that. So we learn that from his God talk. It is not me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. But then in verses 25 and 32, the God talk returns. And in verse 25 and 32, the verse is nearly repeated. So I'm just going to read 32. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly, shortly bring it about. Okay, so Joseph is in the court of Pharaoh, which is, uh, we know what it looks like, by the way, because of archaeology. The court of Pharaoh is surrounded by uh, two dozen deities, very, very large 40-foot stone deities, all of Egyptians gods, uh, Egypt's gods. 
because uh, Egypt was not only the most advanced culture of the day, it had the most advanced cult of the day, that is cultic worship. It had uh, a fascinating and very clear understanding of how the heavens and the earth operated and which sphere was under which god, right? So they had a very uh, um, well-developed religiosity uh, embedded in their culture. And what is, uh, what is Joseph doing in the midst of that pantheon of deities and in front of the man who believes himself to be the current instantiation of the gods, right? So Pharaoh is the closest thing that any of these people had to the Lord of heaven and earth right in front of them. Pharaoh. They believed him to be divine, just like Romans very often believe the Caesar uh, to be divine. So we have this scenario in which Joseph is talking about a superior deity. That's an act of sedition. So he's in front of the instantiation of heaven. And by the way, people couldn't look Pharaoh in the eyes. Eric mentioned this last week, that Pharaoh very often when he would speak would have ferns put over his face or feathers put over his face so that his voice and presence would seem all the more ominous as a deity. And Pharaoh is speaking to Joseph and Joseph to Pharaoh. And Joseph uses this opportunity not to uh, reify the Pharaoh's understanding of his own spirituality or the gods of Egypt, but instead to point his attention to a superior deity, one higher than Pharaoh. What's the evidence that he's higher than Pharaoh? He has given Joseph the ability to interpret dreams, and Pharaoh doesn't have that ability as a deity, and neither, of Pharaoh's, uh, and neither do Pharaoh's magicians nor his wise men. So he is suggesting that the Lord, the true Lord of heaven, has given him a window into the soul and can understand something of these dreams. Um, well... Joseph, unsurprisingly, is what we would call an ultra-minority in his circumstance. He's probably the only monotheist in Egypt, probably the only one who believes in Israel's God. No one shares his perspective, and everyone would likely be antagonistic to it. And yet, in the midst of this challenging circumstance, Joseph publicly and to the highest lord of the land claims that there is an even higher sovereign an even higher Lord, who, to quote Joseph, fixes Pharaoh's dreams as well as Pharaoh's future, and more than that, Egypt's future. That Pharaoh and Egypt and Joseph and everybody else, is, they're all held in the hands of an alternative sovereign and a higher sovereign. And Joseph is ultimately loyal to that sovereign. But it's even more than that. In verse 38, we see something very surprising. In verse 38, Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. Now think about this. This scene began with Joseph confessing God before Pharaoh and it ends with Pharaoh confessing God before Joseph. Because now Pharaoh has had an epiphany that he is not the center of the universe, that he's limited. But there is a God who is unlimited, who can give skill to the most surprising of people, and that he and his life can be lifted and improved as they come into a better alignment with that true God. Uh, <clears throat> and so... Pharaoh is so overwhelmed by this experience and so overwhelmed by the fact that this God who is higher than himself has intersected with Joseph. He gives Joseph an unplanned for promotion. 
and essentially makes him his vice regent. Essentially, when it comes to the day-to-day operations of Egypt, Joseph just moved from a prisoner, which is lower than a slave, by the way, a prisoner to the palace. He now has the highest place in Egyptian politics, higher than the pharaoh, in a sense, because the operations, the day-to-day operations of the empire are now under Joseph, because pharaoh has seen that the divine has intersected with Joseph in a way that the divine has not intersected with himself. And so he gets this amazing, astounding promotion. And this, all of this says something about Joseph's core loyalty. Joseph was not timid about his core loyalty. He spoke up in the most unusual of circumstances about the one who truly held the scepter and the orb of the world, who was the true sovereign. And the true sovereign uh, was not the frail pharaoh. And so Joseph very rightly developed a hierarchy of loyalties at which, in which God was the top. The top of the pyramid was not the Pharaoh, but God. That doesn't mean he wasn't loyal to Pharaoh, but Pharaoh was down a few rungs or a few strata on the pyramid. God was at the top. Um, And I think that this hierarchy of loyalties has something to teach us. I think his boldness about speaking the word of the Lord and connecting to God publicly and boldly has something to teach us um, because... uh, uh, he, he deduced, Joseph deduced that if he didn't have the highest person in the highest place of his own loyalties, that he would be a bad servant to Pharaoh, right? I often find this in friendship, by the way, or in a romantic relationship. When you try to be somebody else's everything, when you try to be somebody else's Uh, completeness in a romantic relationship or in a friendship, you do them a great disservice because you're trying to be a Christ and you can't be a Christ. You can only be a good friend if you realize you're a bad Christ. And similarly, Joseph knew that the way to serve Pharaoh best was to have loyalty attached to someone who was higher than Pharaoh. And then he could love Pharaoh as Pharaoh, but not do the disservice to Pharaoh of elevating him into godhood. Because whenever we elevate somebody into godhood, we do them a disservice because they're not God and we're setting them up for failure. And we do ourselves a disservice because we will ultimately trust them too much and then be destroyed by them when they don't act according to our wishes or plans. And so uh, Joseph had the right loyalty. And friends, I think part of our spiritual sickness and problem is that we, it isn't that we're not loyal enough, it's that we're too loyal. We are too loyal to too many things. Too loyal. You know, all of us are born into, just as Joseph was, or formed by, just as Joseph was, various social structures like family, race, nation, social class, education, talents, and so forth. And what's very tempting for us to do, for me to do, is to, in some ways, divinize uh, those elements, to make them into a superior thing to which I owe ultimate loyalty and deference because those things very often bring me a sense of comfort, pleasure, or stability. And so I divinize those things. Uh, And this is what we do, because there is ultimately no spiritual vacuum. There's no such thing. So if millennials or whoever else wishes to get rid of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we will replace him with something else in that godly position. There is no such thing as a spiritual vacuum, not for spiritually oriented people. And so the question is, who will we become ultimately loyal to? Because we will all serve something. And it's a needful question 
Will we be loyal to the one in whose image we are made, whose image we reflect, or something uh, of lesser quality, something uh, that doesn't deserve us? Will we ultimately believe that in some ways we are made in the image of cash, or we are made in the image of limited government, or big government, or in the likeness of wokeness, Will we seek to reflect the eternal glory of our employer or our social standing or our diplomas? Is that our ultimate good? Uh, you know, Charles Simeon, when he was on his deathbed, he was an Anglican minister who actually, through his ministry, set up uh, systems in place to uh, convert a large portion of the African continent. Uh, and he was uh, dying, and his words were recorded by a secretary and Mr. Simeon glanced at his onlookers and asked, what gives me comfort at this time? Well, I asked myself this question. Did God create and rule over the world or did I? I think he did. And if he did all that, I think that he can sufficiently take care of me. In other words, he understood at the end of his life who held his life and all of our lives and the whole world in his hands. And you, as an image bearer of the ultimate, deserve to place your hand, to place your lives in the hands of that which is most ultimate, that you belong to him and him alone in that sacred relationship. And he is owed your ultimate loyalty. And Joseph knew that. So that's something about loyalty that is demonstrated in Joseph's God talk. But now we learn something about leaven or Joseph's leavening influence. Uh, you may, uh, I have to stoop down and get it. I want you to pick up your bulletin and check out a ladder, um, uh, the latter portion of the passage in verse 33. So Joseph very boldly gives some suggestions to the God-man Pharaoh, right? He says in verse 33, Now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and to take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. And then skipping down to verse 37, this proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. Servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. Now, this is what's amazing about this passage. Um, Joseph was not at this point seeking political office. He didn't go into this situation with great ambition. All he wanted was a get out of jail free card. That's all he wanted. He probably just wanted to go home. But his ability to interpret the dreams of Pharaoh put Joseph in this very unique position. So his options were, I could help Pharaoh and the land of Egypt to avoid mass casualties, or I could do something more delicious, like enact vengeance. Keep in mind, Joseph, the dream interpreter, could have been like all the musicians, all the musicians, all the magicians and the wise men of Egypt, and maybe some of the musicians, and said, yeah, I'm sorry, I heard your dream. I just don't know what they mean. He could have kept his mouth shut. And if he kept his mouth shut, he could have enacted nationwide vengeance on the nation that did him wrong. I want to think about that just for a moment, because Joseph had plenty of reasons to be hateful and resentful. 
Uh, he was betrayed by his family, robbed of his wealth and his dignity, sold as a slave to the, to the uh, archetypal tyranny of Egypt. He was bought by pagans, put in a foreign land, blamed for rape, then sent to prison and forgotten for two years like Nelson Mandela. That was his life. And he had a perfect juicy moment to take vengeance upon the land of Egypt and the king of all paganism. And he didn't do it. Joseph saw the tyranny and he did something strange. He helped. He became leaven. I use that word because Jesus used it to describe the kingdom of God as leaven. What is leaven? Leaven is yeast, small particles smaller than sand, which you mix into dough, which has a massive influence uh, to create bread. Well, uh, Joseph knew that the right loyalty makes you into good leaven. And he realized that if he is loyal to God, the author and architect of all life, then he is not in a position to take vengeance against his enemies because God is good even to his enemies and God is the author of life. And Joseph has been formed by that story. And he knows that he has an opportunity in this situation to be godly, which means to lift the nation out of pain, just like God would do. And so that's what he does because he's been formed by his loyalty. He becomes good leaven in this situation. And uh, he, through his goodness, blesses a tyranny. He blesses the tyranny. Uh, it reminds me of a passage from Jeremiah 29 in which God is speaking to the Jewish exiles in Babylon, 6th century BC. And this is what God says to the exiles who are out of their homeland in an unpleasant situation in a pagan land. He says this, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel to all the exiles whom I have set into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. In other words, while you're here, make the best of it. Make the place better because you exist. And so that's what Joseph did. He used his gifting, his skill, his competence to lift the world. In a way, he was like a new Adam making the Egyptian sands fertile. He saved a country. He saved a country. In other words, Joseph didn't lust for leadership and authority. He just said to Pharaoh, pick somebody that you trust and have them run this thing. And Pharaoh said, great, I pick you. You know, but he didn't lust for authority or leadership anymore. Why? Because the pit experience dug that impulse out of him. Instead, he just wanted to be good leaven. He just wanted to be a decent human being and to use his gifts to help other people. And my encouragement to all of us is to have an uneasy relationship with ambition. I think Christians try to sell ambition sometimes, like, well, we could use it for our good. And I'm like, yeah, maybe, maybe. But I do remember Lord Acton saying something about that, that all power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. All great men were bad men. That last little bit is often cut off from the rest of the letter. But all great men, people that you think are great, were terrible. <laughs> That's what he said anyway. Can't blame me. I didn't say it. Um, but the point is, I think we have to be very careful. Instead of just having ambition, uh, we should remember that we will be bad leaders if, first and foremost, we don't desire to be good leaven. The only people that are good leaders are those who desire, first and foremost, to be good leaven. So here we have Joseph the loyal man and the leavening man. 
this ultimate minority in the midst of a tyrannical culture, and he rises, and because of it, everyone else rises with him. So, my brothers and sisters, my fellow Christians, how do we function as a minority? How do we function as a minority in our families, or in our schools, in our culture, in our government, in social media? Insofar as I can tell, Christians have had a variety of reactions to their new minority status. Here are a few of them that I think are rather imperfect. The critic. The critic. The critic easily becomes possessed by a rageaholic state, thinking that we can change our antagonistic culture through years of well-rehearsed scowling or posting passive-aggressive memes on social media. The idea is, if you scream enough at the darkness, it shall awaken the dawning of Christ. Then there's the worry wart. The worry wart perceives the current culture as filthy water swirling downwards into a dirty toilet. Everything in every situation is destined for destruction, hopelessness, and decay. This state of despairing panic becomes the acidic soil uh, in which Christian hope ultimately withers. What about the hermit? The hermit reads a lot of Wendell Berry and functionally hides from the ascendant dark cultural forces, stores up soup cans, and builds a bunker to hide from the Antichrist. I think this is really funny, but you're not laughing. Okay, I'm going to keep going. The hermit can occasionally become quite the conspiracy chaser, thinking the destruction of the world is coming from the Illuminati or the Bilderberg group. Uh, this hermit tends to forget that the problem of the world is not only out there, but in here, running through the corridors of the hermit's own heart. Or the terrorist. The terrorist. That is, when we seek to sabotage the dark cultural forces through violent speech or violent action, the thought is, since God is not going to smash the evil of our times, we'll do it for him and serve as his hammer. Like the zealots of Jesus' day, the goal of the spiritual a terrorist is to help the evil empire collapse. So the terrorist seeks to create a Christian-esque chapter of Antifa, but one which engages in a little less arson. And then the compromiser. The compromiser. The compromiser hates rejection, the rejection of the culture, and longs above everything to be liked by the ascendant majority culture, especially when that culture perceives itself and proclaims itself as kind, compassionate, and open-minded. Regarding Christianity, the compromiser becomes more than a little self-loathing and distances him or herself from Christian commitments that seem right now out of fashion. The message to the world of the compromiser is, yes, I'm a Christian, but please love me because I'm so adaptable. When we behave these ways, and there are many others, a critic, a worry ward, a hermit, a terrorist, a compromiser, when we behave in these ways, we are doing so because we forget the one who deserves our chief loyalty, the one who holds the orb and the scepter of the world in his wounded hands. So my question to all of us is this, do we believe, I mean really believe, in the first and simplest original Christian statement of faith, that Jesus is Lord? Or don't we? Because if we did believe this, if we believed that he, the scarred sovereign, holds everything in his hands, and will not, in fact, let everything spin out of control, we would know that our destiny and the destiny of the world is grasped by goodness, that the arc of history tilts toward justice and reconciliation and redemption, and that it's ultimately and thankfully not in our control, nor in the control of our dubious politicians. It's in his hands. The whole world is in his hands. 
and he deserves our chief loyalty. And if we have the right loyalty to him as our center, our settling center, we will become the right sort of leaven for our world. So when Jesus, um, the man at the top of life's pyramid, ends up shaping our imaginations, our hearts, our wills, our decisions, our lives, we will become, like Joseph, veritable lifters of creation. Because when you have Jesus as the center, it affects everything. It affects everything. And if everything of, of you is influenced by Jesus Christ, everyone in your life gets better. Everyone gets better. Everybody is lifted. Uh, and best of all, friends, as loyal members of Jesus' formative family, we'll begin at long last to see the world as God sees it. Yes, this world, this idolatrous, petulant, stupid, squalid, bleeding world. We will look at it as God looks at it and love it. We'll love it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. They took your life. They could not take